2: The coronavirus pandemic has already taken a huge toll here in America. Lives have been lost. healthcare workers and hospitals have been overwhelmed. And of course, the jobs and economic livelihoods of millions of Americans have been upended. More than three million Americans have applied for unemployment against the backdrop of a pandemic that at this point shows no signs of abating. Small businesses are among the hardest hit. So this week, I wanted to pay special attention to them. We ask small business owners about how they are adjusting to the new normal. My name's Abigail Opaya, co founder of Yaluchi
3: by Unruly, a mobile hairstyling service serving New York City. My name is Lorena Carlson, and I am the owner of a small non medical home care company in Pennsylvania. Hi, this is Celia Ward Wallace. I am the co owner of South LA Cafe. With my husband, Joe, we are long-term residents in South Central Los Angeles. My name is Rachel Fine. I own a restaurant called Giggle Waters in Safety Harbor, Florida. That's in the Tampa area. We
2: wanted to hear about the realities of operating a business in the middle of a pandemic and how business has changed. We've been drastically affected by the
3: coronavirus, uh, decimated almost. Uh, We were coming up on our second year anniversary of a very successful restaurant. We were up 30% over prior for the first three months of the year. And then this happened, the bottom fell out for us. The spread of COVID-19 has had an impact on us in the sense that we no longer have a revenue to support our stylists. We have a stable of freelance stylists that rely on us for a lot of their income. Since we serve as seniors, many of our clients have canceled services for fear of letting an outside person who may have been exposed to the virus into their homes. Since this crisis, our sales have dropped 70%. We are restricted to just delivery or takeout only, which is maybe representing 20% of our average business. We're trying to meet the need for essential businesses wherever we can by feeding people, but I can tell you right now I had to lay off uh, nearly 30 staff members. Our caregivers have canceled shifts. The older ones who are afraid to go into the home and risking possible exposure to the virus, and our younger caregivers who are unable to find child care. But we're doing our best to help our stylists out in this time, pay for canceled appointments, and we have also
2: shifted our marketing budget to cover them in the months coming forward. And many of you are still waiting for a coordinated federal response.
3: Trump's misinformation and contradictions about the seriousness of the pandemic have slowed the government response to help my family and my business. While larger companies like Boeing were able to access extra money incredibly quickly, companies like mine need to go through lengthy application processes to eventually receive money, while having to immediately start paying leave to our employees. If I manage to survive and come through this whole thing, well now I've got more debt on my head. So what are we really doing to support small businesses? I'm trying to stay open. I'm trying to keep my doors open and provide an essential service and keep people fed during this crisis. But I need to know that the government
2: has my back on the other side and can help support us.
4: So this week, I spent some time talking with Lenore Estrada. I'm the founder and CEO of Three Babes Bake Shop in San Francisco. I'm also the executive director of SF New Deal, a nonprofit that's dispersing over a million dollars in aid to small businesses here in San Francisco.
2: Lenore has lost hundreds of thousands of dollars of business and has had to lay off 20 of her 26 employees.
4: One of our biggest days of the year is Pi Day. So 3.14, like the Greek letter number. Um, And so that's a day when a lot of tech companies buy tons and tons of pies. And this is our ninth year in business. And um, every year we sell out many weeks in advance, usually over 2000 pies are sold that day. This year, we were ready with thousands of pies um, to pre-sell. And um, we just saw that like the uptake was much slower than usual. So we kind of knew something was up. And I think people were just being kind of more cautious because we weren't sure what was going to happen. And so for us, like our our main customers are these technology companies that are buying daily for their dining rooms. And we have those orders normally a month in advance. So for us, gosh, I would say three weeks ago, Uh, We knew we were going to have to start laying people off. We knew that many of the technology companies here in the Bay Area were enforcing like an everyone works from home policy. Um, And so I came in on, I would say, the 9th of March, um, ready to reduce people's hours. And that day we started getting just like massive cancellations for 30 to 60 days. So for us, we immediately knew that if we were going to continue operating and not have to file for bankruptcy and also um, keep health benefits for the you know, the people that had it through our company that we were going to need to make massive layoffs. So that week, I laid off 20 staff members. Which has to be really hard. It was really, really heavy. Yeah. We wanted people to be able to apply for unemployment benefits quickly because we anticipated that there would be a lag time and that the system would be overwhelmed, which proved even more true than we were thinking. People are seeing. Uh, they're having to wait for over three weeks to receive their first check, which is, is super tough. We've been trying to find ways to support our workers in other ways. And last week, a friend of mine uh, reached out with a donation of a million dollars for me to try to deploy to businesses here in San Francisco that are really struggling. And so um, my business is not benefiting directly, but um, we are trying to help small food businesses not lay off their workers um, by giving them regular business to make food to deliver to people in need here in the city of San Francisco.
2: Congress is working on passing legislation that is supposed to go directly at folks like you, which will say, look, if you keep as a small business owner, keep those people on your payroll instead of laying them off, this loan that we're giving to you is actually going to be more like a grant because you don't have to pay it back. Just just make sure you keep those people on your payroll. Can you
4: use that? So for me, like I laid off people two weeks ago. The, the payroll where everyone already has lost their job and have missed the payroll um, was like, 2 days ago I had to run. So my regular payroll is $30,000 every time I run it. So if you're waiting a month to get that money, like who has $60,000 to front? The difficulty is I think most of the businesses I know who are, you know, small main street type type businesses have already laid people off like 1 to 2 weeks ago. Um, and I, I've i been like desperately <laughs> sort of following, um, following along um, with all the government stuff that's been happening, hoping that there's some way that I can just rehire people or um, extend their last day to be later if we're getting grant money to like give people more sick pay. Even being able to apply for these things isn't available yet. And the time has already passed where the money would be required. I'm looking forward to following up with whoever I can get in touch with in the government. I did call Nancy Pelosi's office offices, and it's just like you can't even get through it to anyone. So it's hard to know um, even what the stuff that's been passed means. And um, even though it says that people are going to get that relief immediately, there are a lot of unknowns still. And it's not soon enough to help small businesses like mine.
2: That's right. Well, that's a question is, all right, to your point, you know, how many people have money to sort of front right now, knowing that in theory, they're in a number of days, weeks, they'll get that money back. But the second is, let's say you do ultimately get this money, even if it's a month from now. Is your intention then to go rehire those people? I mean, that's what Congress is hoping that you'll do is you'll go back to the people that you laid off.
4: But is that really difficult to do? I mean, to like, turnkey This? Well, I think right now for people who are service workers or wage workers, it's not easy to find another job. So I think that most of my people or everyone would love to get their job back. And if we're able to pay people, not just people who are like confirmed infected with coronavirus, but yeah, when we have a shutdown here, most people can't leave their houses. And so as long as those people are covered and they can get paid, to stay home, which is the best thing for public health. I mean, I think that would be incredible, but it's just like the money has to get to the businesses because I, I don't think that people, like it's impossible to get a loan right now.
2: Yeah, like if you just wanted to go right now and say, okay, I, I don't know when I'm gonna see this money. I wanna, I wanna immediately do X, Y, and Z. If you went to a bank right now and said, will you just give me a loan to cover
4: my payroll? You can't do that. No, <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe now that this announcement's been made, but I called my banker, like three weeks ago um, to try to get a loan. And she said already at that point that banks had stopped lending, especially to retail businesses who were doing between two and 10 million in annual sales, that there just was nothing available. Um, And so I did apply for some loans through like, you know, PayPal has a loan program, Square, um, Shopify. Uh, they have these programs where you can borrow and then you pay a percentage of your sales back. They're pretty expensive loans, so you know it can be like ten to eleven percent. But if that's all the money you can get, then you know that's it. So I did apply for some of those, knowing that like regular bank loans were going to be cut off. I've also applied um, for an SBA loan, but again, it's just like, it takes time and the, um, the system is overwhelmed. So I think, um, you know, when I talked to, I'm working with city officials here on this SF new deal project that I mentioned before. Um, and people are working incredibly hard, but it's just like everyone needs aid all at once. So just like the hospital systems are overwhelmed, like our local officials, um, and you know, SBA officers, um, are just, you know, trying to work with ton of, a ton of demand and more hours than they have in the day. Right. I mean, the system literally cannot process that much all at once. Yeah. That's uh, right. So that's why we're looking for private solutions to, um, to, like, get money to people more quickly, because it's just the government is so big and has so many stakeholders, they would have needed to start, you know, six weeks ago doing what they're doing now for it to be effective in actually preventing businesses from shutting. Um, I can tell you that in my in my work with SF New Deal, you know, we're reaching out to restaurants to try to you know give them regular business um, and just pay them money, and a lot of them say they have already closed forever. Should government officials have seen the warning signs
2: and said our very first piece of legislation that we need to pass is going to address these small business people who've laid off a bunch of folks, especially in the service sector?
4: I think anytime you have a gigantic system, it's it's just a lot of moving pieces. like I know as a business owner, you know the more large and complex your operation gets, um, the more friction you have in everything. So I think that's to be expected. I do think um, at the federal level, the government should have taken the threat of coronavirus more seriously more quickly. Um, so I definitely think they should have acted sooner. Um, but again, I think you know, even I'm seeing this on the small business level, you wait as long as possible to make the negative like the the tough, the tough calls because it hurts, you know, it's expensive. In some cases you're laying people off who are losing healthcare, like, it, like really tough decisions are being made. And so, you know, on the, on the federal level that trickles up to like, yeah, it's, it's super expensive and um, it's hard to get consensus unless there's a clear crisis. And so I'm, I'm thankful that the federal government was finally able to work together to pass something. Well,
2: and I know even beyond just your own day-to-day payroll that you are worrying about and trying to cover. You were also
4: trying to open a new like brick and mortar facility, right? Yeah. So um, it's just, it's like kind of an empty, it's an empty construction site. Um, It's tough because we, we normally we would bring in around a hundred thousand dollars from Pi Day and then we have our normal business. So we in, in like a four day period basically had like $200,000 in cancellations. Um, So you know, we had like the money we were expecting to come in and had already purchased inventory for is not coming. Um, So we owe debt on a number of things. And then we just like have very little income. A, A lot of stuff happened because of like coronavirus problems just growing. So, you know, knowing we had all these cancellations, we laid a bunch of people off. We were worried about workers getting sick. So we we reduced time for our remaining workers. So the six workers who are remaining are on 40% time and we're using um, like unemployment benefits to, that we have here in the state of California to like cover some of the money that's missing, the shortfall. You know, so I think there are just so many um, there's so many unknowns we have no idea how long this is going to last which makes it hard and we're just kind of doing our best to um, to work with the information we have and try to preserve the viability of the business and um, the financial well-being of our of our staff
2: Lenore, I really want to thank you for taking the time to to talk to us about this and I really do hope that everything comes together for you thank you so much yeah, I hope so too Lenora Estrada is the founder of Three Babes Bake Shop in San Francisco and the executive director of SF New Deal. All week, members of Congress worked to reach an agreement on a $2 trillion stimulus package that will, among other things, provide relief to small businesses. We just heard from Lenora Estrada, a small business owner in San Francisco, about the tough decisions she's already had to make to confront the economic fallout brought on by coronavirus. Lenore is worried about any relief that she gets will be too little and buried in red tape. I asked Congressman Colin Alred,
0: I represent Texas's 32nd congressional district.
2: If he's been hearing similar concerns from his constituents in Dallas.
0: Yeah, I'm, I've heard that as well. I, I know that there's a lot of concern. Uh, With the speed of this. And I think that we've tried to move as quickly in Congress as we can to push out a a $2 trillion package. I think that anyone who's seen previous um, Congresses would have to say that this has moved very quickly, even though there has been some back and forth. Uh, But the administrative side of this is going to be a concern. Uh, I think that we're going to have a huge surge in the uh, number of applications for all these things, whether it's unemployment or for these uh, small business interruption loans or for the grants. Uh, and so we're going to have to make sure we administer this uh, well. And I think that's that'll be a hurdle. Uh, and I, I certainly have heard from folks who this is already going to be coming too late because uh, we, we are you know, several weeks into this now. Uh, but uh, some of the folks I've talked to uh, recently, I think, are still looking forward to anything we can provide. Uh, they are furloughing employees or they're asking employees uh, to take some cutbacks in hours. And they're still afloat, but they're just barely afloat. And so uh, the need is immediate, and we're going to have to make sure that we try and get that out as quickly as possible.
2: Tell us, too, about the balancing act in this legislation and, of course, going forward as well between those big companies you talked about, Southwest Airlines, American Airlines, and the folks who right now are barely able to, um, you know, survive um, day to day. And the frustration that many still feel about 2008 in a sense that, that corporations didn't have the sort of oversight that got sort of the sweetheart deals and regular people were left out to dry. How did you balance that? And how do you think it still needs to be balanced?
0: Well, I think we're still in the process of balancing it. And just talking about the administrative process of getting these loans, that's something that, that large corporations are better able to do. Uh, than your your small mom and pop businesses, and so uh, cutting that red tape is going to be critically important in terms of leveling the field here. Uh, and you know we do have enormous amounts of money uh, in this bill put aside for small business, you know over 350 billion in federally guaranteed loans, uh, and we have enormous amounts of money for big business as well. Uh, but the leveling the playing field, in my opinion, is going to require us doing a massive effort uh, in education and support. I know my office is certainly trying to do that. We've produced a small business report uh, that our, our, we're going to be sharing with all of our small businesses. We're doing Zoom meetings with our chambers of commerce where they can learn about how to help their membership uh, get access to these things. But We're going to need the federal government to, to be affirmative in terms of reaching out as well. And, and there is a lot of, I think, uh, consternation still about what happened uh, in 08. I think that's hanging over all of this for all of us uh, to make sure that we don't make that same mistake. Uh, and I think time will tell.
2: Are you getting a lot more calls to your offices from small business folks and others who are trying to navigate, and and constituents, quite frankly, who are trying to navigate all of these different um, websites and bureaucratic hurdles to get funding, whether it's unemployment insurance or whether it's these loans and grants?
0: Well, absolutely. I think we're getting a lot of requests just to understand what even is available, and I think that's that's part of the education that has to happen here is that we have loans, we have grants, we have uh, different uh, levels of, of things that you can apply for and seek. Uh, and so to, to provide that information is going to be critical. You know, my staff is working remotely. Uh, we're still at full capacity, but we're working remotely as, as are uh, many in the federal government as well. And so that, that also adds a layer uh, of complexity to it. Uh, and that's why we're trying to do things like having these Zoom meetings with chambers of commerce. I was on local TV yesterday answering questions, uh, text message and email questions in uh, about uh, what we are, what's in this package that passed the Senate and what people can expect to see. I think there's a lot of folks out there who are encouraged to see this bill uh, come through, but now they wanna know what's actually in it and is it actually gonna reach us in time? And so that's gonna be our big task now.
2: There's a lot of money going out the door from Washington right now, dealing with a very real crisis. At what point, though, can, does that become unsustainable?
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. Well, th- this is one of the arguments that I made when I was seeking this office uh, was that uh, the tax bill that was passed in 2017 was irresponsible because during times of plenty, that's the time when you want to pay down uh, these debts that we have racked up when we are trying to recover from the Great Recession Uh, And now we're in a position where we're going to have to use enormous government funds and borrowing uh, to try and deal with this crisis. And at some point, interest rates are going to go up again, and we're really going to be under a crunch. We're going to have to deal with this at some point. And I think right now the focus has to be on getting through the crisis, dealing with this health crisis, getting our people and our businesses and our economy through it. Of course, what happens here is not going to be isolated to the United States. The entire world is going to be experiencing this we may see a global economic recession and global economic uh, downturn. And all of that will make it even harder to deal with our financial situation. So uh, there's going to have to be some very serious conversations. We're going to have to have a serious conversation with the American people about what's necessary for us to recover from this. I think it may change uh, the way we discuss our politics for a little while. And, and, and in some ways, I welcome that, that maybe we can have uh, a real conversation about the way we need to deal with our fiscal house and how we are conducting our business.
2: Congressman Allred, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me, and and please stay safe.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, and stay safe as well.
2: And many of you have been weighing in on the stimulus package and whether or not it will help you.
3: My name is Allison, and I'm calling from San Diego area. Since it's going to take so long for the money to arrive, and the quarantine or stay-at-home orders seem to be dragging on for much longer than anyone wants, it would be nice if they could send more than one payment.
5: Hi, this is John calling from Hopewell, New Jersey. A $1,200 check would be a godsend to me because I'm... A senior on a fixed income and every bit helps. However, I am somewhat concerned about how this is going to be paid for a little further down the road.
1: This is Ronnie Rock. No, I won't really receive anything from the stimulus bill. And $1,200 wouldn't be a drop in the bucket.
3: Hello, this is Susan from Ripon,
1: Wisconsin. I'm fine. I don't need the $1,200. It's the people that are working for minimum wage. That are desperate to get this money.
2: The federal government has responded to the COVID 19 crisis with three different emergency funding bills. The latest, a $2 trillion package aimed at pumping money to businesses large and small and individual Americans. Paul Kane is the senior congressional correspondent at the Washington Post and is covering this action closely. I also wanted to talk to Paul because he was on the Hill during the 2008 financial crisis and 9-11. And I wanted to get his perspective on how these two events may be impacting the way Congress is handling its response to this pandemic. Paul, let's start from this, which is we are now on our third major congressional response, really putting federal money into battle this crisis why are we on number three? I mean, what was in here that wasn't handled in number one or number two?
1: The way to think about the bills, um, phase one, some call it go, go by phase, some use step. But phase one was just a, qu- a fairly quick instantaneous jolt of money to the healthcare care system and, and sort of the people who we want to try to investigate for ways to mitigate and potentially, you know, eradicate this disease. And the next bill was something that was that uh, was more about a that tests for this would be free; they would be paid for by the federal government. A test for the virus, and then also just a quick jolt of unemployment insurance extensions, sort of allowing the system to get ready to have more people filing for unemployment. Those are the two main facets of that. Now this piece, phase three, is really trying to deal with, in a much bigger, broader fashion, the response to the disaster, both on a care, medical front and also a financial, economic setting the floor uh, of how bad things are going to get. So for this, you have essentially a four-part uh, plan, the first and probably most important to some degree… Is you know what Chuck Schumer likes to call the Marshall Plan for the healthcare sector, and it, it's you know 130 some billion dollars pushed into hospitals so that they can try to get masks, ventilators, all the right testing kits, beds. My gosh, beds. We just we need hospital beds. The second piece is. Uh, just to help small businesses uh, try to keep their payrolls going. Uh, we've already had uh, news this week that more than three million people filed for unemployment in in one week, the the biggest, I think maybe maybe ever, certainly you know, larger than anything of the last decade. Um, so they're trying to provide a program. It's ah uh, allowing small businesses, To tap SBA-backed loans that are really just grants that are going to go to a small business, anything under 500 people, to keep people on their payroll so that when we get past this, that they can restart their company, restart their restaurant, their retail store. Um, because these are these are just the, the economic engine of America, and also just a lot of cultural fabric of any neighborhood.
2: It, it seems like, and and we're getting some of this response too from people who either are small business owners or work for a small business that maybe it was t- too late that so many of these businesses already laid people off. How is this loan program going to help them?
1: I believe that there will be a system by which companies can file for these loans and essentially rehire people that they laid off and, and use that as a floor. I think, it you know, like anything with a, a program that's going to be run through the federal government, to some degree states, and then also banks. It might be complicated, but I think they will be able to essentially rehire those that they laid off and then pay them. And if there's enough money out there, they think, for at least eight weeks of employment, they may have to go back and, and re-up it, uh, depending on how bad, how long things go uh, in terms of the health crisis side of this. So – that's that's the a lifeline of sorts to what they're trying to do. So those two pieces were sort of the 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 easy ones. Not that any of this was easy. Then it gets trickier. There was the uh, a five hundred billion dollar industry fund, but it's meant to go to corporate industries in crisis. The airlines, first and foremost, that have basically just imploded because of the government mandate that people not be traveling. So. They will use that money to try to shore up industry. It was a very tricky negotiation that went all through the weekend into early this week because Democrats were not going to support that carte blanche. They weren't going to give $500 billion over to sort of hand out to any industry uh, Steve Mnuchin wanted. So they had to put in a bunch of provisions. Uh, Chuck Schumer said that one of which was an oversight board modeled very much after the 2008 – TARP Oversight Board, um, and he uh, – the person that he consulted most closely on that, he said, was uh, Elizabeth Warren, who uh, really sort of came to national fame in, in one of those oversight boards after the 2008 financial crisis. So they got more provisions. They created a special inspector general just to oversee this particular fund um, to make sure that this money gets handled in a proper way. Um, The very last item that they were haggling over was a transparency requirement on that fund that within seven to 14 days, Treasury would essentially publish who was receiving the money. So that got very tricky.
2: For many people, it seems like this is taking too long to get through Congress. But you know, as well as anybody, to to get three major pieces of legislation through Congress in a relatively short amount of time is pretty unprecedented. Are we now in a new era? Can we say now that the fever's broken, that partisanship is no longer the defining um, coin of the realm on the Hill or we just have, it's just a matter of time before debates about the same things come up and who's to blame and who didn't do what in time and this money wasn't distributed or thought about in the right way and there are problems within the bill that we didn't see because we rushed it too quickly. What do you see?
1: It's going to take about nine days in total, maybe even 10 or 12 from sort of the point where Mnuchin said, I'd like a bill by Monday, and instead he's going to get a bill by Friday. Even as they were going to a 96 to nothing vote, senators fought with one another. They bickered. Mitch McConnell gave. On the floor every day about how Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi were blowing this deal. The morning that the bill would eventually pass, McConnell went to the floor and gave opening remarks in which 90 to 95 percent of it was still bashing Democrats. And then he admitted, oh, by the way, we've gone really far in negotiations and we're at the five yard line. After the bill passed, McConnell went up to the press galleries and was still railing against Democrats. Pelosi, on her usual Thursday weekly press conference as she was mapping out the path to passing the bill, was taking plenty of shots at Republicans and using the words like slush fund. It's just we're into a different era in which partisanship is permanent. And even when you produce votes, that are going to be 96 to nothing i think we're still just in an era where there will be a lot of poison in in the water and uh you know what's going to be really tricky is we did this really big thing it's a 2.2 trillion dollar package and it's gonna look the final votes are gonna look bipartisan boy i don't know how they do the next bill they're gonna have to do stuff but boy, the tension is big. It's, it's, it's real. And going to that well too often, we're going to hit a point where the partisanship really might make it really difficult to keep doing what needs to be done.
2: Paul Kane is a senior congressional correspondent at The Washington Post.
5: This week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama. Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like
0: paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy.
5: Enviable posture.
0: (laughs) I am a writer, and I have this this very slight hunch, and he has none of that.
5: A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast.
2: We turn now to someone helping to manage at the front lines of this pandemic.
5: Around the 6th of March, we had an encounter with a patient who would have told us nothing that would have indicated that they had a coronavirus issue.
2: It's Dr. James Augustine. He's medical director for South Fulton, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta.
5: In fact, that patient had coronavirus, and we are informed uh, by our state authority, three days later, uh, that that patient had an infection and that we would need to then quarantine the people that were involved in their care.
2: First responders, including those in South Fulton, are under an immense amount of strain these days as they respond to any emergency call, car accident, fall, or other illness. They don't know if the patient may also have coronavirus. So I asked Dr. Augustine to tell me about the community in which he serves and how his staff is adjusting.
5: The community in the city of South Fulton uh, is a blue-collar community, working people. Uh, many of them have positions in and around the Atlanta International Airport, Hartsfield-Jackson, uh, and in the logistics industry. Uh, that's a big area for warehouses and trucking, uh, and the people that live there serve both in the huge warehouses and distribution centers in that area and in um, moving products then from there around the whole southeastern part of the country.
2: Right. So these are a lot of the folks who are still working even in this time of, of uh, stay-in-place orders. Is that right? That,
5: that is correct. Many of the people in those communities are very important to critical goods moving uh, throughout the country.
2: So can you tell us what it is like to serve as a first responder, as an EMT at this moment in time? What is it like for the, for the staff that you work with?
5: Yeah, this is a very tough time uh, because they, th- these are people all dedicated uh, towards going out every time and saving lives and preventing damage. Uh, at this point, though, they face the threat that they um, can get ill as a result of this, uh, either themselves or they can take it home to their families or take it back to the fire station where they're based. So this is a new threat and one which we typically don't focus on in in our duty serving the community.
2: What has changed then as you come onto any sort of scene, whether it's a car accident or a call to nine one one are you all doing something different than you were before the coronavirus started?
5: Yeah, yeah it starts when you begin your shift. Um, hmm. In most of our departments now, they check each other's vital signs and check to see if they have any symptoms to make sure that a sick individual is not working that day and is not exposing the community to them. They then uh, do an extra uh, amount of work cleaning our apparatus, cleaning the the medic units, making sure that all of our equipment is clean and that the back of any of our units is kept as sterile as possible so that we don't get anything dirty that we don't have to get dirty. They go out on a a call, and on the call, uh, they are oftentimes um, alerted to information that this individual may be sick with the coronavirus, and that's, that's specifically what we're talking about now. And then they begin to prepare themselves. And in many cases, and in the Atlanta, Georgia area in particular, we have gone to what we call universal respiratory precautions, which means every patient encounter begins with our personnel being in a mask, and in eye protection, and in gloves. And they ask the patient to put on a mask so, even in our situations where somebody has fallen and um, and has injured something, that's a very unusual, unprecedented way of us mm-hmm. approaching patients.:
2: Is there something that you would like to see federal, local state government doing to assist you more and assist the people that you work with in a better way?
5: The two pieces uh, that that keep coming up, uh, we don't have enough personal protective equipment. uh, And being short on that, we've had to set up programs to conserve the personal protective equipment we have available, particularly the masks that we use. And the second is the testing doesn't allow us to get answers for our people when they're exposed because we can't test the patients rapidly.
2: So you're saying not just testing for your own people, the people who are the EMS folks, but for patients themselves so that you could know immediately, okay. That's
5: correct. This is what we're dealing with. That's correct. The, The idea is if we had a rapid test in the emergency department, Uh, available for this, like we do for HIV and other infections. Mm -hmm. We could rapidly tell uh, the EMS personnel, you just uh, dealt with a patient who has the infection that we're concerned about, and here are the things that you need to do.
2: I'm wondering about how it's impacted your life as an emergency physician, those folks that you work with on the front lines, in terms of just your own personal day-to-day interactions with family and friends that you've been around, people who may be infected, how do you integrate?
5: We always have a baseline fear uh, that we won't come home from work um, intact, (laughs) uninjured, and not ill. So you have people who are very accustomed to dealing with that. Uh, But in this case, it is a slow-moving infection, uh, and you're very concerned that you would take that home to your family. In some cases, um, our first responders have moved away from their family. In some cases, these people prefer to stay around the fire station so that they don't really interact with anybody else.
2: As this moves along and we seem to have more questions than answers, I'm wondering what it is that you are most worried about.
5: Yeah, the prior coronaviruses have had rather nice up and down patterns. Very honestly, China, you know, is now in a point where they're having very few new patients. It is our hope that this will follow a similar pattern that the the virus will burn out. It would be very concerning if it doesn't burn out. And if it goes into an extended course, it is obviously something that passes transmission wise from person to person very efficiently. And if we continue to see the death rates that we have seen in some countries and a prolonged uh, outbreak of this or multiple cycles of it, uh, that would be very concerning in the overwhelming of our health system and in many deaths and in the disruption of society that we have seen even to date.
2: Dr. Augustine, I want to thank you so much for taking this time out and, and speaking with me.
5: And thank you for taking the time to cover this very important issue. And on behalf of the first responders that you're educating in the public, thank you very much.
2: As we know, COVID-19 has shaken every aspect of our lives. And as someone who does political analysis for a living, I've been particularly interested in understanding what this means for people running for office, especially those at the highest level. So I reached out virtually, of course, this past Thursday, to Anita Dunn, a senior advisor to former Vice President Joe Biden, and
6: asked her how it's impacting the campaign. We are communicating with voters in Wisconsin in a digi- using digital tools, using a good old-fashioned telephone. We do not have people knocking on doors. We don't have state offices. We pulled back just about everything around March 10th or 11th, I'd say.
2: And is your expectation and the campaign's expectation that these primaries are still going to be held and you're just expecting
6: through June that this is the reality? This is the reality. And, you know, we have run this campaign facing different realities all the time. Right now, June 2nd is shaping up to be a second Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Many states are moving to that date. Um You know, we'll see how engaged this primary process is when we get there. I mean, the reality is that we have at this point with over 60 percent of the um, voters having voted in the Democratic primary, the states having moved, we have a lead, a net delegate lead of over 300 votes beyond Bernie Sanders at this point in 2008. Barack Obama had a net delegate lead of roughly 120 delegates. So we feel very comfortable where we are in terms of the net delegate lead that we've already accumulated, and in terms of the states that have yet to choose their candidate. But clearly, there are more important things going on for voters right now than picking a um, picking the nominee of the Democratic. At the same time, it's still important to people. People are people are engaged, but right now. They are, you know, want to stay safe and they want to figure out what's going to go on with their jobs.
2: And I saw the other day that the Sanders campaign has said that if there is a debate scheduled in April, as there was supposed to be, he would like to participate in that. What do you think? Should there be a debate,
6: first of all? And if so, would the vice president participate in it? I think it's unlikely that there's a debate in April. I don't think there should be a debate in April you know, increasingly across the country, the guidance people are getting is to shelter at home, to stay in place, Mm -hmm. to not go to gatherings where there are more than 10 people. And clearly, having a debate right now is not the most pressing thing on people's minds. So I think our position is, you know, there really doesn't need to be a debate in April. There have been 11 debates.
2: Anita, I want to move on now to thinking about sort of the path forward for any politician right now. I mean, you know, as you said, we're campaigning in a time of pandemics. And when I think about the last time we had a such a significant crisis in this country, go back to 9-11, and there was sort of this pause on politics at the time. Candidates were taking ads down. No one was doing fundraising. Of course, we didn't have a presidential election eight months from that time. But the other difference seems to be that campaigns, not just for president, but at the state and local level too are going forward. I just would like to get your take on this. How do you balance that? As you've pointed out throughout our conversation, this people are concerned about other things more so than politics, while also making a case that the current president should
6: be fired? Well, I think if, you, if you've watched what Joe Biden has done and listened to what he has said, really going back to January 27th. He has been raising the alarms around whether this administration has prepared adequately for what was clear, even in January, was going to be a significant public health crisis in this country and an accompanying economic crisis in this country. I mean, it was not a secret what was going on in China. It was not a secret that cases had come to the United States by then. And what people want to see right now is they they want government accountable. They want the right questions asked. They want people with clear plans of what they would do and what should be happening right now. And that's, I think, a totally legitimate way to carry on a campaign right now. You draw differences. You put out there clearly what you would be doing, what needs to happen. Now, as Biden has said several times, he'd be very happy if the administration just took his recommendations and did them. And I think if they did that, he would probably praise the president, but, you know, at a time when we have significant shortages of medical equipment in our hospitals for the people who are on the front lines, the healthcare workers, when you have workers in grocery stores who don't feel they're adequately protected and are, you know, putting themselves on the line every day for the people of this country, you know, it is fair to ask questions about why we weren't better prepared and how we're preparing now to deal with what comes next.
2: I know you have probably seen this story. The New York Times uh, came out with a piece that mentioned some Democratic strategists worried that Mr. Biden, quote, needs to be more visible at a time when Americans are looking for leadership. Um, I've seen the vice president, he was on MSNBC and CNN. Are we going to see more of this? And do you agree with some of that push that you got from this article that the vice president needed to be doing more?
6: Well, I often feel the New York Times has a very um, dedicated group of Democratic strategists that they can call on to comment on almost everything we do to say that it's either not enough, too much, or just wrong. But having said that, of course he's going to be out there more. He's not the president. He's not a governor. He doesn't have line authority right now, but what he does have is the um, responsibility as you know, a major candidate for the nomination as someone who is certainly in line to become the nominee, to make it very clear where he would be doing things differently, what he thinks needs to be done, and to lay out a clear vision of what comes next for the American people. I think that people will see and they will hear his clear vision for what needs to be done and the very clear steps he thinks that we need to do to make sure that workers are taken care of, and not just large corporations, to make sure that the public health is protected, to make sure that the decisions that this country makes are in the interest of everybody, both in terms of safety, public health, and also the overall economy and the people who really make it work, who are the workers.
2: Anita Dunn, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Thank you for having me, Amy, and stay safe and well. Anita Dunn is a senior advisor to former Vice President Joe Biden. Anita Dunn is also managing director for SKD Knickerbocker, The firm does PR work on behalf of the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. After we taped our interview, a report came out in The Intercept that alleges Time's Up declined to provide legal assistance to a woman with a Me Too allegation against Joe Biden. We reached out to SK Knickerbocker for comment but did not receive anything before broadcast time. If we do get a comment, we'll post it to Twitter. And one more thing for me today. I woke up to a glorious morning here in DC, one of those days when you can feel and smell the spring coming. And it had me think about gratefulness and grace. So I want to say thank you. Thank you to the people that we often overlook. The woman who checks you out at the grocery store, the postal worker who handles thousands of packages, the person behind the counter of a convenience store who's interacting with hundreds of people a day, these are the folks that are helping to give our lives some sense of normalcy and predictability at a time of great uncertainty. May they all stay safe and well. Another big thank you to the team here at The Takeaway that has once again produced a show under less than ideal circumstances. This show was produced by Patricia Jacob and Amber Hall with help from Jose Olivares and Jackie Martin. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our engineer. Polly Urungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our administrative assistant. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. And of course, call us anytime at 877-8MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. Please stay safe. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.